And once again, good morning. Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As I said, we are in chapter 5. This morning, we're going to finish a series we've been working through, uh, a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. In uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 through 30, as we have been seeing and looking at, Jesus makes five claims to his own divinity, five claims of equality with God the Father. And uh, they are as follows, verses 17 and 18, Jesus claims equality with God in his person. Verse 19, Jesus claims equality with God in his work. Uh, Verses 20 and 21, in his power over life and death. Verse 22, and then 24 through 30, Jesus claims equality with the Father in his authority to judge. And the final one that we're going to look at today comes out of verse 23, where Jesus claims equality with God the Father in honor. So let's back up to verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, Jesus said, and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So guys, here we are given the reason why the Father has given His Son the authority to raise the dead and judge the world, so that, listen, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now guys, this is the the, uh, final and greatest statement of Jesus, testifying to the fact that He is God and equal with the Father. Uh, As we said in verses 17 to 23, He really makes those five declarations of his divinity. Starting in verse 24, running through verse 29, verse 30, he amplifies the uh, third one. Uh, He claimed equality with God in his power over life and death. And so verses 24 through really 29, uh, he amplifies that. So the final statement he makes about his divinity is really in verse 23. And uh, many consider this to be his greatest declaration of divinity you see we know as we have read the word many times all of us that god in his word has repeatedly warned that he will not share his glory or honor with any other god and that he alone is worthy of praise honor and glory now we could look at dozens of verses on this i'll just point you to one isaiah 42 verse 8 where the lord said i am the lord That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Or in other words, I won't give my honor, glory, praise to any other God. But guys, listen. Since Jesus tells us right here that the Father wants the Son to be as honored as much as He Himself is honored, well, it's very clear then that the Father is declaring that the Son is God co-equal with the Father, and of course the Spirit. Altogether they are the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal. 
But the Father wants everyone to honor the Son. What does it mean to honor the Son? Well, the Greek word is tamao, and it's a word that means to esteem, honor, uh, and or reverence. It's used especially of the respect and reverence that the children must have for their parents. Uh, it's, it's a Greek word that really isn't used in worship. However, in this context, it expresses the sentiment of religious reverence from which worship flows. And so even though it is a word in the Greek that really isn't used specifically of worship, when we talk about how that the Father wants the Son to be honored, obviously in that context, it's, it's very right to assume because when you're honoring God, there is always an element of worship involved in that. And so obviously it does apply in Jesus' case. But um, let me just give you three main ways we honor the Son. Now, these just came to me, uh, you know, pretty obvious. They're not deep or profound at all. But they really come out of what we've already studied. Uh, when Jesus gives us verse 23, it's the Father's desire that all honor the Son. Really, he sums up everything we've kind of been discussing and learning about in the verses previous, okay? Things he's already talked about when he, he declared his divinity. And so I'm just going to uh, go through these. The first one is very obvious, okay? How do we honor the Son? First of all, by believing he is God. Now, guys, the whole series has been about Jesus declaring his divinity, if you remember, what launched us into this series in the first place was when Jesus, at the beginning of John 5, healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and healed him on the Sabbath. Okay, well, that really got the religious leadership worked up. Uh, you know, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and so on. And uh, they accused him of being a law breaker, contrary to uh, Moses. Because Moses gave the Sabbath, and how dare you violate the Sabbath? Well, he wasn't violating the Sabbath. He was only violating their stupid Sabbath laws uh, that they had attached to the Sabbath. Okay, God just said rest on the Sabbath. You need to rest. Your servants need to rest. Your animals need to rest. You're working in the fields all day and all week. Just rest and take that day to spend some time with the Lord. Okay, very simple concept. Lawyers got their hands on it. You, you give a lawyer anything, they turn something simple into something really. So they, they came up with really hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of things that they couldn't do on the Sabbath because they had to rest. And we dealt with that, so I'm not going to revisit it. Craziness, though. It was craziness. And, but they went berserk, these religious leaders. They heard him uh, you know, heal this guy on the Sabbath. And it didn't matter to them. The guy had been lame for 38 years. They didn't care about the guy at all, just that their religious rules were uh, violated and their sensibilities offended, I guess. Um, so Jesus responded to their criticisms. He said, my father has been working until now, and so I have been working, verse 17. Well, that really sent them into orbit, okay? That really sent them. And, and, and in response to that statement by Jesus, we read in verse 18, Therefore the Jews, when you see the word Jews in John's gospel, he's always, well, most of the time, using it to talk about the Jewish leadership. Again, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. All right? So verse 18, Therefore the Jew, Jewish leadership, sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal 
with God. You see, in the Jewish mindset, a son was always considered equal with his father in being, not in honor. The father was always, in that patriarchal society, the father was always more honored than the kids. But just in, a, in, a, in the sense of being, okay, uh, they were equal. And the leadership understood what Jesus was saying. There are liberals who say he never claimed to be God. Well, you're not reading your Bible carefully, okay? Of course he did, and, uh, and, and, and all. And by calling God his father, he was saying he was equal with God. Now, you can't be equal with God unless you are God. That's why they wanted to kill him, because he had blasphemed in their minds. Of course, it wouldn't be blasphemy if it was true, which it was. He is God, okay? He is equal with the Father. But see, they rejected that, all right? And so now all they're left with is a guy who's claiming to be God. Well, that was grounds for, uh, for a stoning because of blasphemy, all right? And, and as we've already pointed out in this study, the phrase, uh, you know, verse 18, uh, making himself equal with God uh, in the Greek uh, sh should be translated really this way. He constantly made himself equal with God. This was no isolated incident, okay, that we might misunderstand in some way. And No, this was the hallmark of his ministry. Everywhere he went, he kept claiming equality with God the Father, with God, all right? And this either caused people to realize that as Messiah, he was no mere man, which rightfully so, he was God incarnate, or it caused others, like his enemies, to write him off as a lunatic, uh, as a stark raving lunatic uh, and blasphemer. And we'll come back to that at the end of the study, okay? So only two choices, really, all right? But um, he, he went around everywhere constantly declaring he was equal with God. Now, that brings us to verse 23 then. And he tells us that the reason the Father has given the Son the authority to raise the dead and judge the world is because the Father wants the Son to be uh, honored as much as the Father himself is honored. That was the Father's way of declaring the Son's divinity. And Jesus is acknowledging it. Commentator William MacDonald put it well when he said, and I quote, This is a most important statement and one of the clearest proofs in the Bible of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, we are taught that God alone is to be worshipped. In the Ten Commandments, the people were forbidden to have any, any God but the one true God. Now we are taught that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The only conclusion we can come to from this verse is that Jesus Christ is God. Many people claim to worship God but deny that Jesus Christ is God. They say that he was a good man or more God-like than any, than any other man who ever lived. But this verse puts him on an absolute equality with God that requires that men should give him the same honor which they give to God the Father. If a person does not honor the Son, he does not honor the Father. It is useless to claim a love for God if one does not have the same love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have ever real, excuse me, if you have never realized before who Jesus Christ is, then ponder this verse carefully. Remember that it is the word of God and accept the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, end quote. 
Well, you know what, guys? What most Christians today take for granted about the deity of Christ and his equality with the Father, well, that was not always the case in church history. We go back to about the 4th century A.D., and there was a, um, a, uh, a, a theologian from North Africa, the city of Alexandria, actually, whose name was Arius. And Arius uh, believed that Jesus Christ was not equal with the Father. He was the greatest leader that ever lived. He was probably the most moral man that ever lived. But he was definitely not divine. He was definitely not uh, equal with God the Father. And he was a master uh, debater. And uh, he uh, would debate people pulling out verses like John uh, 14, 28, where Jesus said, the Father and I, excuse me, the Father is greater than I. And uh, so he argued that uh, Jesus of Nazareth could not possibly share, the, share God the Father's unique divinity. And so he gathered a following, okay? Uh, it became known, though, as the Arian heresy. One historian tells us what happened. He said, most of the bishops, see, Constantine uh, had been newly converted to Christianity and became the leader of the church by his own decree. And so he, at one point, because uh, uh, Christianity, theologically speaking, had come to a, a crossroad, an impasse. So he called for a meeting. It became the Council of Nicaea in 325. Called for all the bishops of the church, uh, churches around the known world to come, okay, to... Um, to uh, uh, I forgot exactly where it was that they gathered. Um, I think it was, well, it was Nicaea, but, um, but I forgot what region that was in. Anyways, um, so he called for all the bishops to come together. Now, one historian says most of the bishops were repelled. They were just horrified by the idea that Jesus Christ could be thought of as to them what amounted to be a created being. When they worshiped Christ, they did not worship a creature. They worshiped God. They were saved not by a created being, but by God. The bishops proceeded to craft a creedal, became known as the Nicene Creed. They, the bishops uh, uh, crafted a, a creedal statement of faith concerning what they believed about the Son of God. The bishops wrote in their statements, and here's part of the Nicene Creed, uh, that Jesus Christ was God of God, light of light, True God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. The writer goes on, a key phrase was of one substance, which translates a Greek word. And that Greek word means that what God is in his essence, well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also of the same essence, okay, absolutely equal with God the Father. The author said, eventually all the bishops except for two signed the creedal statement, believing that it contained the ancient faith of the apostolic church, and it was an accurate re reflection of the truth of God's nature to which the New Testament points, end quote. Well, that was not the end of the Arian heresy. It kind of went underground where it remained for centuries among the apostate Christian church, okay? Those who claim to be Christians, but embrace false doctrine. As we have said numerous times, John 8, 24 says, you can't, you can't be saved unless you believe that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. 
well, they didn't believe that, okay? And, uh, they, but they clung to verses, and we'll deal with this when we get to, uh, you know, to later on in John's Gospel, where Jesus said, my father is greater than I. Uh, that was a big deal for, uh, for them back then. I mean, that's what they were pinning a lot of their theology on. Jesus himself said he wasn't equal with the father. Well, no, he didn't say that, but we'll get to it, okay? But this doctrine, this Arian heresy, uh, remained buried in the church, among the apostate church for centuries, and it was finally resurrected to become the foundational doctrine of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, also known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who do not honor the Father because they don't honor the Son. In their mind, Jesus Christ is not Almighty God. Now, they admit he's a mighty God, but less than Almighty Jehovah God, he was a created being, the first created, creative act of God, the Father of Jehovah God. And then Jesus made everything else. But John 1.3 says that all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So that tells us Jesus couldn't have been made since he made everything. Okay? He is creator. He is not the creation. But we see people embracing this doctrine today. And um, I like what author Warren Worsby said. He said, and I quote, Our Lord claimed equality in another area, namely equal honor with the Father, quoting from John 5.23. Worsby said, The fact is that he is the appointed, uh, the fact that he is the appointed judge should cause men to honor him. What a tremendous claim. If you do not honor the Son, you are not honoring the Father. The religious people who say that they worship God but who deny the deity of Christ have neither the Father nor the Son. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the Father, worship the Father, or serve the Father. End quote. So the first way we honor the Son is by believing that He is God and that He is the Creator. Even as Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, talking about the angelic realm. All things were created through him and for him, for his honor and for his ultimate glory. Now the JWs, Take verse 16 of Colossians 1. You see, it can't, they can't have this read this way in their New World Translation. Because it says, for by him all things were created. Well, but see now, they believe Jesus was created himself. So they had to put the word other. For by him all other things were created. Okay? Because it doesn't square with their theology. Uh, they're a cult. And I appreciate the zeal. I've had JWs come to my house. I had a beautiful African-American husband and wife couple come over. Had a wonderful time with them. Just sweet people. Pray for them like crazy because we had a wonderful talk. But, um, you know, I didn't really, wasn't able to budge them. But uh, one day, uh, Pastor Eric uh, Benz from Calvary Cardinal was, we were having coffee in my, in my uh, kitchen doorbell rang and we had a wonderful gentleman knock on the door there or ring the doorbell and say he was a JW but we'd mind if he came in and talked to us said, come on in <laughs> right? 
So we talked to Joe for about an hour, and a wonderful man. Zeal, a lot of zeal, but not according to knowledge. Remember what Paul said of the, of the Jewish people in Romans 10? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness, have not submitted to God's righteousness in Christ. So a lot of wonderful people out there who have been deceived. They're not our enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Don't argue with them, Paul tells us. 2 Timothy 2, don't argue with them. Be patient, kind, loving, and humility. Try to correct them by just giving them scripture. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, open their eyes, and they will come to him in truth. That's our mission, right? Not to fight with people and put them down because they don't have the truth. Another way we honor the Son, though, because he's God, is that he's coming again one day to judge the living and the dead, right? And we talked about that in the last couple weeks in this series. We talked about how Jesus Christ is coming, and he's going to judge the world. He has the right to do that because, A, he is God, the one who made the world, and, B, because he lived an absolutely sinless life as a descendant of Adam, born of Mary, virgin-born, but lived a sinless life, and therefore, he has the moral right and authority as God to sit in judgment of fallen sinners. He will judge the living and the dead, Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 4.1, at Jesus appearing and his kingdom. So there's coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead. He ought to be honored for that, in that way alone, for that cause. So, so first of all, we honor the Son by believing he is God the creator and judge of all the earth. Number two, we honor him by receiving him as our savior, as our savior. Look, is it possible to believe that Jesus is God and still not go to heaven? Is it possible to, we just said we have to believe in him as God. Is it possible to believe in him as God and still not go to heaven? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, okay? There are many who believe that Jesus is God. God Almighty, second person of the Trinity. I did as a Roman Catholic. I believed in Jesus as the true God. I wasn't saved. There's many people who believe that Jesus Christ is God. And even honor him by calling him Lord. That are still not redeemed. Still not going to heaven. Turn to Luke 6. Now, you remember how that in Luke 6, at one point, Jesus turned to a group of his disciples. And just because people physically followed Christ and called themselves his disciples doesn't mean they were necessarily saved. And right here we get that very clearly. Because he turns to a group of these would-be disciples one day and he says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? So they honored him. In that regard, they called him Lord, and yet you don't do the things which I tell you. Well, you don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it to you. It brings us to Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus went on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, they have judgment. Well, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, went to church and 
helped out in the food pantry and so on and so forth. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He didn't say, I knew you for a while, but you didn't make it. Sorry about that. You were supposed to be faithful. You, you blew it. So, I, you know, you, you were safe for a while. Now, I, I believe if you're genuinely saved, you're safe forever. These folks were phony Christians. They thought they were genuine. I mean, they, there's a lot of people who think they're the real deal, but they're not. Okay? Well, how do, you, how do we know? By their fruit. You go out and live lawlessly all week, which means contrary to God's laws. Well, obviously, Jesus, you'll know them by their fruit, right? You'll know my people by their fruit. None of us are perfect. We, we said Wednesday night. I mean, some Christians produce more fruit than others. With some, you've got to look long and hard to find a couple of shriveled grapes. They're there, though. Uh, you know, they're, you know, but, but not everybody's going to produce an abundant amount of fruit. Well, John 15 tells us that Jesus, that the Father, is all about pruning us ouch, uh, with adversity, to make us bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. So that's, it's a process, okay? But the idea is that there are many people who go to church and consider themselves Christians. They even call Jesus Lord. They're orthodox in that regard. But they're not going to heaven, okay? They're not going to heaven because they have not received him as Savior, as Savior, Look, it isn't enough to believe that Jesus is God. Uh, James 2.19 says even the devils, even the demons believe that and tremble. You must believe that Jesus is God Almighty. That's true, John 8.24. If you don't believe that, you're not going to heaven. He said that clearly. But then you must also receive him, receive him as your personal Savior. If you're going to benefit from his sacrifice on Calvary's cross for your sins as, listen, the Lamb of God. Remember what John the Baptist said when John was baptizing people and he had a lot of disciples, but he was telling them, one is coming who, you know, I'm not worthy to loose his sandal straps, right? And he's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth, right? So one day John's baptizing there in the Jordan and here comes Jesus to be baptized. And John points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Old Testament, animal sacrifice, just temporarily covered sin. Couldn't take sin away. Only the blood of Christ can wash us clean from our sin. So yes, who takes away the sin of the world, but not in mass. Not, you know, to receive that forgiveness, yeah, it's available to the whole world, but to receive that forgiveness, you must put your faith in Christ personally, right? People get saved one at a time. Uh, nations don't get saved. Okay? Nations don't even experience revival. People re experience revival. And when enough people start getting revived, it becomes a national movement. Uh, but, but, but God works individually. He doesn't save nations. He saves the people within those nations. And then they, you know, the number grows, the light gets brighter, and we see more and more people getting saved. That was the Jesus movement back in the 60s and 70s that Calvary Chapel was birthed out of. But, but my point is that even though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, the whole world won't be saved. You must apply what he did on Calvary's cross for you 
by faith. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Some of you have been here when I've read this and applied this chapter. So if you've heard me do this, please just bear with me. There's a lot of new folks. But I want to see how, show you how this even works out in type in the Old Testament. In type, pointing to Christ. In Exodus chapter 12. Now, this is right before they were going to make their exodus out of Egypt. Okay? Verse 1, Exodus 12, 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb... Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, the top beam of their doors, of their houses where they eat it, the Passover lamb. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The judgment will pass over that house. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I, when I strike the land of Egypt. Let me just say this. I was talking to one of our guys after first service. And uh, he said, I, I actually got this from something you said. I shared it with some guy I've been witnessing to. And I use this example. About, about you know how the, the, the judgment of God passed over certain houses that put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel. And of course, if you visualize your mind blood in a bowl and a, a little hyssop branch, you dip it in the blood and you, God said, strike the doorpost and lintel, right? He didn't say, dab it on the doorpost. He said, strike the doorpost with the bloody uh, shrub what sign would that make a spray on the door? Cross, right? Jesus at the volume of the book, it is written of me. He's in every page, type, prophecy, shadow, picture. It's amazing. The issue was the blood. He nailed this guy because this guy thought, you go to heaven by being a good person. And our guy said, it didn't matter if there was a murderer in that house. The issue was the blood. If an Egyptian family had come to believe in the God of Israel because of the, the, things, the, ten, the nine plagues, and they put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and lintel of their house, and a Jewish family did not on their house, the firstborn of the Jewish family would have been killed, and the firstborn of the Egyptian family would have been saved. 
It was the blood was the issue. Not the goodness of each person inside the house. Just like it is not your goodness that gets you into heaven. It's what Jesus Christ did. But listen to me. From the passage, okay, we, we read this and we, we understand that there are many in the world that see Jesus this way. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Some believe that Jesus is a lamb. A lamb. They believe that Jesus is one of many roads that leads to God. He's a road, a lamb. Even though Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Then others believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb. They really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world, the only way to heaven. Maybe they grew up in a church or went to Awanas when they were little and learned the gospel and so on. There's a lot of folks that know the gospel. And they really do believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate who came and died on the cross for our sins. The third day rose again, ascended back to heaven eventually. They know the gospel. They believe the facts of the gospel. It's just that they have never made Jesus Christ their Savior. That's the third point. He's not a lamb, and he's not enough to be just, it's not enough to believe he's the lamb. You have to make him your lamb. You have to receive him as your Savior. You must apply his blood on the doorpost and lintel of your heart by faith. That's what causes you to be saved, and that's what causes the judgment of God to pass over your life. Paul even tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he calls Jesus our Passover, right? And he said not only did he observe the feast, Jesus, but he fulfilled it in his death. And so this is the thing we're talking about. It honors the Son, yes, when you believe he is God Almighty. It further honors the Son when you receive him as your Savior. Hey, look, he left his exalted throne in heaven. He left his glory in heaven. He became one of us. He was born into poverty. He grew up working hard in his stepfather's carpenter shop. I mean, he suffered hunger and thirst and all of that. And then when he went to the cross after three years of, of ministering and loving people, and they nailed him to a cross... All because he loved us. Don't you think it honors him to say, Lord, I'm not going to let all that be in vain for me. I'm going to receive you. Because what you did, how could I not honor you by not receiving you? And number third, number three, we honor the Son by submitting to him as Lord. Submitting to his lordship. Now, we've talked about this at the beginning of this series, so I know this will be review for some of you, but I think it's important enough to bring out at the end of the series as a reminder, okay? Look, there are people who come to church, and there is something in the church called pragmatism. What is that? Well, it's where people have a very kind of a pragmatic, almost utilitarian view of Christianity. What do you mean? Well, they... We'll say they come to church because they want to get something. What do they want to get? Well, I don't know. They come to church because they want to hear a, a message that makes them feel kind of warm and fuzzy in their relationship with God, you know? Uh, they give to God, but only because they want that hundredfold return that they've been promised. Guys on TV, you know? 
promise them the hundredfold return if they give their money to to the to their ministry. Uh, you know, um, so they're looking for something in return, right? They're looking for something in return, and a lot of these folks bring this mentality into the church, and uh, so, sometimes they come because they have uh, a, a financial problems are a big one today, and marriage problems. In fact, uh, somebody said that um, young couples, this guy was a, a Christian, it was his whole ministry was uh, finances and trying to help Christians be more uh, financially sound. Uh, he said young couples today want to have in three years what it took their parents 30 years to acquire. Because of it, a lot of credit card debt goes into filling the house with furniture and, and uh, maybe a couple cars in the driveway, a boat maybe, uh, uh, all this other stuff, you know, a fire pit and, and all in the backyard and all this stuff. Um, so they get a lot of credit card debt, and this creates a lot of marital pressure and problems. So they come to church hoping that, you know, the pastor from the pulpit is going to give them some principles to help them deal with their financial problems or their marital problems. And guys, as we have pointed out, which I really want to stress, those are symptoms of a deeper problem. People don't, Christians don't have financial problems. They have a lordship problem. They are not spending their money in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Jesus would never want you to spend yourself into debt so that it impacts every, your joy is gone, your marriage is in turmoil, every, you're working two jobs to pay off the debt, and now you have no time for church. God would never want that. You're not honoring God when you're spending and spending yourself into oblivion. You don't have a financial or money problem. You have a lordship problem. You're not honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and being good stewards of what he's given you. Same with marriage. When couples are fighting and they think, oh, we, have, we have marital problems. No, you both have lordship problems. Because husbands, are you cherishing your wives as God has told you? Wives, are you respecting your husbands as God has commanded you? You can just read Ephesians 5, 21 to the end, I think verse 33. Where verse 33, Paul sums up how God has wired men or women. You don't have to like it or agree with it, but it's in God's word. You better not ignore it. Where Paul said at the very end, there's he's talking about marriage, right? And the roles of men and women, excuse me, in marriage. He stops at the end and says, and husbands, you cherish your wives, and wives, you respect your husbands. Because those are the two, th that's how we're wired. Sure, I want, to be, I want to be loved by my wife, but more than anything else, I want to be respected by her. And gals, I'm sure you want to be respected by your husband. But what you really want and the way God's wired you is that you want to be cherished by your husband. When husbands and wives don't do what God's told them to do, they don't have a marital problem. That's a, that's a consequence. That's, a, that's just a, a, a consequence, all right? What they have is a lordship problem. A lordship problem. We have been talking about this in this series. Look, you honor the Lord Jesus Christ when you... Think of him as your Lord. Well, let me put it this way. When you call him Lord, and it's not a name, it's a title. Listen to me. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. His title is Lord, Kurios. That was a term 
for the one who owned you. A master or a lord was somebody who owned slaves. When you read your Bible and see we're bond servants of Christ, cross that out and put slave. That's what the Greek word actually means. Translators have softened it because slavery is offensive to a lot of people. Kurios, Lord, and nobody can be the Lord of nobody. So Kurios was the master of the doulos, the slave. We as Christians have gotten into the practice of calling Jesus Lord as a name. What did Peter say? Not so, what? Lord? Rise, Peter, kill and eat, as the, you know, Acts 10, the, 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 you know, the bed sheet was coming down with all these animals, unclean animals inside. Clean and unclean, God said to Peter, who was having a vision. Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Jesus was, Peter was a good Jewish boy. He would never eat anything unkosher. He said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. Jesus said, don't you, Peter, don't call, don't say not so, Lord, basically. You can't say not so to your Lord. If he's your Lord, he governs and controls your life. The only thing you can say is, yes, Lord, your servant hears. We don't do that, do we? we? We don't do that today. We're calling Jesus Lord, but we don't intend to do the things he has told us many times. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a name. It's not a title. Listen, the, listen the, to every, the solution for every problem we face as Christians boils down to how we relate to our Lord, Jesus Christ. He's really our Lord, which means our master, master over all of our lives. We will obey everything he has said. In this way, we honor him. Now listen, we're done. I just want you to understand something, as Jesus is telling us here. The Father wants us as, his, as Christians to honor the Son. Honor the Son. That we believe He is God. We've received Him as our Savior. And we submit to Him each day as our Lord. Jesus said in John 12, 26, If anyone follows me, um, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. You honor the Son on earth, and the Father will honor you in heaven someday. With rewards in a place of honor. Listen, let me just say this and we'll close. It's the Father's desire that all honor the Son. Someday, listen, every person will eventually obey the Father's command to honor His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 23, the word all. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Well, the Bible declares that someday all people will honor the Son, either willingly or unwillingly, because someday every knee throughout the entire universe is going to bow before the Son and give Him honor. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11? Therefore God has elevated Jesus Christ to the place of highest honor and gave Him the name above all above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess or will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. The only thing left for a person to decide, listen now, 
The only thing left for a person to decide is whether they're going to bow the knee to Jesus in this life willingly out of love or will they wait until they stand before him in judgment and bow the knee to him begrudgingly before they are sentenced by him to hell. That's the only choices. I mean, you will honor Jesus Christ someday. The only issue is, will you honor him now, in this life while you are alive? And if you do that, he will honor you someday by ushering you into the presence of God for eternity in heaven. Or you can live as a rebel. I mean, there's a lot of folks that you know want to live as rebels, uh, do their own thing. You can certainly do that. You will bow the knee to him, though, someday just before he sentences you to an eternity of separation from him because that's what you wanted, right? That's what you wanted. People don't want anything to do with God in life. Then they wonder why God doesn't want anything, anything to do with them in death. Let me end with one more quote by a pastor that I think summed it up well. As he taught on this section too, in much the same way we have, he said, and I quote, and so Christ claims equality of person, works, power, sovereignty, judgment, and honor with the Father. And may I say to you that either this is a shocking, startling, blasphemous claim by an unrivaled madman, or else it's true. Well, the Jews decided to believe that Jesus was being blasphemous. You have the same choice. I want you to notice verse 24 and see what your choice determines. Where Jesus basically said, Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall never be judged. Okay? The author says, That's the gift for those who believe. They shall never come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. There's the two options, he said. If you're going to take the side that Jesus Christ was the world's greatest liar and blasphemer, which is what the Jewish people or the Jewish leadership, that was their position, then your inheritance is death and judgment. If you receive Christ the Savior, well, it's life now in abundance and eternal life someday in heaven. The choice is yours. The same choice that confronted those Jews is the same choice you have before you right now. The pastor finishes by saying, I pray to God, you choose better than they did. End quote. So by God's grace, we will continue next week. And think of this as a courtroom setting. Jesus Christ has just testified for himself. Next week, we'll see, he begins to call witnesses to testify on his behalf as well. And pretty interesting. We'll get to that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who died willingly on a cross that we might have our sins washed away, was buried, rose the third day, ascended back into heaven and is coming again someday to judge the living and the dead. He will be honored throughout the entire world someday when he establishes his kingdom. But if we're going to be a part of that kingdom, then we have to bow the knee to Christ right now. So, Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of all in this room. That anyone who is not made, they're not sure if they've really received Christ as their Savior. That they would do it before they leave this place. 
Father, we just thank you that uh, you love us so much and that you gave us your son to die in our place. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.